Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. It is Friday. It is the brightest conversation in Hamilton Radio. That's what we like to call it. So we need to have someone bright and conversant. Uh, Jamie West is a communication consultant. Consultant. He's a former media czar. I say star, but either way. Uh, now he's the founder of divorcecom.ca, a new company that helps people navigate the complex and expensive family law system. Uh, Jamie, how are you? I'm good, Scott. Uh, how are you tonight? I am. I was thinking to myself, you know, we hear a lot in this city, and justifiably so, about how difficult it is for people to be able to afford a home, especially a single family home. Today is the one day if you have been one of those people saying, I, it's not fair. I can't afford a single family home. Today and last Friday are the days you say, you know, that's a good thing. No shoveling. <laughs> I'm not saying all the time. I'm saying on days like this, that's not a bad thing. I have to agree with you there. I mean, already I'm agreeing with you and, and we haven't even started. Um, I know that never yeah. happens. That never I, happens. And been, let me just tell you, before you came on the air, speaking of real yeah. estate, there is a piece on a website called BlogTO. Uh, homes in Paris, Ontario, somehow cost almost exactly as much as in the real Paris. Real estate prices now around here have gotten so bonkers that you can go to Paris, France, one of the most sought after cities in the world, and it will cost you the same to live in Paris, Ontario. My goodness, I guess I'll be moving to Paris if I decide I'm going to move to Paris. I'm going to move to the real Paris. Why wouldn't you? I mean, well, Paris, Ontario is very nice too. But it's you don't not have to learn French Eiffel if you Tower move to Paris, Paris. Ontario. What's yeah, you that? Don't have to learn Fr- you don't have to learn French if you move to Paris, Ontario. That, well, that's <laughs> true. That's true. And as somebody I'm pointed st- out, uh, how many Tim Hortons does Paris, France have? <laughs> well, then what's the point of moving there? Does anybody care anymore? Well, there's that. There is <laughs> That's that. That's another is, that topic. Is, that is an issue for, uh, but yeah, it is, you know, it's, it's uh, I, when I saw this, it, it really is bonkers. All. I mean, look, Paris, Ontario is a lovely little place, but it, it does speak to just how crazy, and this is, this is with real estate prices in this area down a bit. Things have dropped a bit and we're still now finding, you know, comparisons and it doesn't look good between no. us and them. That's no. incredible. It really is incredible. How are uh, how things been? It's been a long time since we had. Now everybody knows who Jamie is. He's, he, I mean, for those who have been in this area for a long time, Jamie was on CHCH uh, seven lifetimes ago as a reporter, and then he yeah. did all kinds of stuff on CHML. Here he was a host, and he did all kinds of things, and then he got into other media opportunities, and now you've got Divorcecom going on. It's uh, things are good. Everything's great. Uh, thanks for asking. Yeah, it's been, you know, everything that you mentioned there on that laundry list had to, has to do with um, professional communications of one sort or another. And, that, that, you know, that's always the business uh, that I've been in and in different roles in, in that sort of world. And, you know, we've just um, taken all of that experience and and more and a lot of personal experience, quite frankly, and uh you know, have moved into this, uh, this new direction. And, uh, I have to tell you, uh, for anybody that's listening, if you want to understand more about it, this is Scott's show, but go to divorcecom.ca and that'll explain it all there for you. Um, and you will see that, uh, there is a lot of hope out there for you. If you're stressed out, if you're going through separation or divorce, uh, check that out. And, uh, and then, uh, we can talk later. Jamie, let me ask you this. I, th- this is something that that I, I wonder about every single time we end up with 
a, a forecast that there's going to be snow this morning at uh, I don't see what time it is at five forty seven a.m. The Hamilton Wentworth District School Board put out a tweet: All schools and administration buildings are open because the snow was coming a little later. And that was followed by a raft of people saying, are you people morons? There's snow coming. How can you make our kids go to school in the snow? What kind of idiot is this? What kind of decision is this? Here's one. I don't understand why you can't just close the school when weather is bad. The states do it all the time. You're putting stress on teachers and parents during this time. Jamie, what did we do years ago when there was way, way, way more snow? I don't remember. Did we cancel schools all the time? Very rarely, uh, very rarely. I I spent part of my childhood li- living in Ottawa, and the the snow banks were snow massive yeah. in the early se- in the early seventies. And uh, we went to school, and I, even even in Hamilton, uh, we got back to Hamilton in nineteen seventy five. It was very rare that we had a snow day. You, you just got up and you put on your snowsuit, your snow pants, whatever, and you bundled up and you went to school and we need to start doing that again. I mean, I know some people, I know some people will say, oh yeah, but there's, there's the school buses. We had school buses Uh, back in the seventies and eighties and probably the sixties and the fifties. I just, I, I, I just don't know what's happened that we now have come some, not all, some have come to the conclusion that if there's a threat of snow, everybody should just stay home. It's way too dangerous and stressful for anyone to have to go out of the house. We're looking for any reason whatsoever to uh, to slag off. <laughs> quite frankly, we've we've raised a couple generations of super soft people. You've got helicopter parents and bulldozer parents who have been trying to take every discomfort in the world. We've talked about this so many times in the show. Take every discomfort out of the way of of kids that e- exist. And what we've done is we failed to teach them how to overcome anything. And if you can't teach them how to overcome walking to school uh, in the snow, then I think we're in big trouble. That's just my opinion. One tweet that came in, and I think this person was being sarcastic as I read this. I hope they were, because it's either really funny and sarcastic or really sad and pathetic, but it says, (laughs) forecast, 20 20 centimeters of snow, Hamilton parents, capital letters, all 20 centimeters will fall at 2.30 p.m. precisely, and our children will be trapped. Um, yeah, but that's yeah. kind of, uh, they're being facetious, I'm very sure, but that's kind of the the sentiment that, because there's others that say kids are going to be trapped at school and how are they ever going to get home? It's like, well, I'm pretty well, sure that people have made it through 20 centimeters of snow in the past. And, you, you and again, what, I have you know I have family in the Ottawa Valley. I saw a picture recently, we were going through my parents' condo, cleaning out photos of my mom, who was five foot nine standing in her walkway that had been shoveled out and the snow was two feet taller than she was on each side. Well, I remember that. Like I said, I I remember that very clearly from when I was a kid. And and, and here's the thing. They didn't always close uh, the school at the beginning of the school day. Like the blizzard of 77 and 78, that, yeah, they closed the school. But if, if the snow was really bad, sometimes school would end early. Um, and you know, and kids had to go home, but here's the thing. Um, you know, not everybody was, was at home. They'd still release kids to go home, even though they didn't know whether or not there were, there were parents to receive them and so on and so forth. And somehow, somehow we all somehow survived because 
what we would do is say, well, my dad's at work. My mom's at work. Well, then you'll come over to my house. And then a bunch of kids would show up at the, the house where, where mom or dad happened to be home that day. Like, I mean, this is insane. We, we're teaching everybody not to think, but you know, you're getting well. I, no, no. I, I look. I, I agree that I, I, it seems as though we are sending a message. Like, look, if you don't want to go into work today, uh, fine. Call in and tell your boss you're not coming into work, and you can either say it's because I'm can't can't get through the snow, or because you can make up an excuse. Whatever. I mean, who knows what? But but when you are telling your kids that any situation is too difficult for you to push through. I just, to me, that's just a, a crazy message to be sending for the reason you said we're, we're telling them not to, per, not to persevere. We're telling them not to try things that are hard. And I know some people are going to say, it's just snow. We're not talking about like not studying for a hard exam or taking a difficult course. But when mom and dad are sending the message that any obstacle is not overcomable. Any obstacle, we have to pull back and basically just throw the covers back over our head. To me, that's, you know, we're not, again, if, and again, if this was six feet of snow falling, Jamie, I get it. Mm -hmm. It's 20 centimeters was the prediction, or 15 even, or maybe 10. Right. And, and I was out there uh, uh, today and I was careful uh, driving and and the thing was, it wasn't. We didn't have we didn't have zero visibility whiteouts. We, with the snow was falling. Yes, it was heavy. Yes, we had to be careful. Yes, we had to look around. What's wrong with that? Like again, why do we have to? Why do we have to be locked in our in our homes uh, over something like that? And why do the kids have to miss a day of school theoretically? Um, over that, I was glad the schools were open. I, I thought good good call. Good call. Um, there have been some days where I've gone, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. And I've said it many times, and I usually get blasted for it. I usually get blasted by parents and, and teachers. When I was doing talk radio, I, I used to bring that subject up frequently, and I'd get killed on the air for for saying toughen up. Well, <laughs> I, I don't stand and there's one it. other and there's one other thing with this, Jamie, and that is the kids who are in school now, most of them are already the kids who have lost so much school time and instruction because of COVID, whether yes. it's because of snow days or because of COVID or because of home learning or because of the adjustment back and forth or whatever else. These are the kids of any kids of any kids who have ever gone to school in our system, these are the kids we should be finding every possible way to get to school every conceivable day to try and help them catch up, not Absol finding excuses absolutely. to stay home. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and uh, and, and it seems as though, it feels as though uh, that is already starting to get forgotten uh, in all of this, what you just said, that, that it's sort of, uh, back to business as usual, and it can't be. It can't be business as usual. Um, you know, I know there's a lot of politics involved in in education, and I, but it can't be business as usual. It just can't be. And you know what? Get up, put on your snow boots, and get out the door and go yeah. to school and go to work too. Go well, on, get. It, it, you know, it, it just, it seems to me when I, and I predicted, I mean, I could predict this, you could predict this, everyone could have predicted this this morning, that as soon as we heard there was going to be some snow on the Friday before March break, which by the way, may have had something to do with some of these answers. 
I, oh, yes. I am guessing that one or two of the people who were eager to not go into school or have their kids go may have been thinking, you know, we're leaving for Florida tomorrow. I wouldn't mind not having to do anything or pack up or whatever else. I, who knows? But yeah, it's, um, it, it just, it's, it's so predictable though. Every time now there's snow, every time Jay McQueen comes on here and says, we could have some snow, you're going to have people saying, well, pff, cancel schools then. Well, yeah, and 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 in the case of Friday before March break, you'll recall that it was the uh, Friday uh, before the school, the Christmas break was to start uh, a couple of months back, where we got we got hit with a with a snowstorm, and that shut the the schools down on the Friday when they were supposed to go in for their last day. Yeah, and nature so get, you know. nature does have a sense of humor that it always sends the snowstorms or at least the threats of a snowstorm on a Friday. <laughs> it's always a Friday when these things come, which of course makes it uh, probably easier to cancel. Jamie, this week, uh, all the talk in Ottawa has been about China and election stuff and everything else. I'm not going to get into the politics part of it right now. I want to talk about something else there. And this affects all political parties at different times. This week, it was certainly the Liberals. It was particularly the Prime Minister, but this could be any party. We have a situation, and it's been going on for a long time now, where if a particular politician, specifically a leader, doesn't like the question they're being asked because it's uncomfortable, they simply answer another question that's going on in their head that they've decided they're going to answer and avoid the question, and nothing is ever done about it. No one calls them on it. No, there's nothing. How do we fix this, or can it be fixed? How do we make politicians answer the questions that they're being asked? By having a media that's more intelligent, <laughs> that that won't let them get away with that, that will keep it going. Um, and I would, I would say, okay, let me jump in for a sec, because I would say that that is right. But here's the problem. So when the media was calling the prime minister, and again, it could be any party, but in this week, the prime minister, he starts going off on his blah, 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 that it doesn't answer the question even remotely that was asked. And they start yelling in, no, answer the question, answer the question. And then once he's done, he walks away. Yeah. So there's well, no, there's no, and in the, and in the question period, it's got nothing to do with the media, but the house, the speaker of the house and nobody else makes them do it. What do we do to make them answer questions? I, I think it comes down to what I said before. There's only one way to do it. And that is to repeatedly, uh, reporters have to repeatedly uh, point that out and, and destroy them for the evasiveness. And, Maybe then the 20 something PR handlers who've grown up just thinking that if they don't say it, it doesn't, it's not real and it doesn't exist that, that teach the prime minister and all the other spokespeople, the, the media, uh, flax who practice and coach this stuff before he ever gets in front of a microphone and come up with a playbook and a script for these things. This stuff never used to exist back in the day, back when his right. father, for example, was the prime minister of Canada, people just spoke. You know, and so you get those people out of the way um, and then you uh, you have the you have to have the media representatives themselves uh, get tougher uh, at dogging them for this stuff. And there has to be some kind of unified front among the media uh, groups to, to make that happen. But if you put enough pressure on these guys, once once it becomes once the general public or the general uh, voter 
uh, becomes concerned and they start to get that back in their, you know, political surveys that the temperature taking they do every three days, then they'll start to, to, to maybe talk, but it's going to take a lot of pressure. But I'm, I'm, I'm telling you right now, I'm not impressed at all with our media in, in this country when it comes to, uh, asking tough questions. There's a lot of people that act like they're asking tough questions and act tough, but they're not. Uh, and a lot of their questions are pretty milk toast and quite frankly, pretty dumb. I, I would love, quite honestly, I would love, and this would be, I'm sure, highly illegal. I would love to have an outright ban on spin doctors, on those people who, as you say, come up with here, the here. answers and <laughs> anticipating what's going to be coming. And when someone asks you this question, here's how you answer it. I, I would, I would ban them. And I would say any party that is found using one is fined a million dollars a day. Like just totally, <laughs> and I know it's totally illegal, but make it I like so impossible. Sorry, we're kind of stepping over each yeah, other yeah. on our on our audio tonight. But here's what I wanted to say about that. The, the, for people listening to the show, the first clue that you can have or that, that exists, good folks listening to the program tonight, is when a question is asked by a reporter and – the person who's there to answer the question says this, you know, they've been spun. They've been coached. They'll say, thank you for the question. Well, what is that? Th thank you for doing your job as a reporter and asking. That's you, what you, they do. They ask questions. And you're not really grateful that they're asking you that tough question that you're now going to be evasive on. That That's that more than anything is the biggest sign and symptom of the insincerity and the BS that exists between the media and the and the people who are supposed to answer the questions. Now I'll be quiet and let you talk. No, and and I the other thing is I would love I don't know and, and you know one of these days when I'm really bored I mean to the point where I'm near, needing almost to be made comatose I'm going to read the. <laughs> rules for the speaker of the house and what he or she is permitted to do. I mean, I imagine that is reading that is like dry as the Sahara desert. Nonetheless, one day I'm going to do it because I don't understand in the house of commons, how the person who is in charge of that room in charge of that chambers is not in a position to say to the person answering, you did not answer that question, even remotely answer the question. And I, and, and I'm not, I don't want them to be political about it. Do it on all different directions. Do it to the NDP, do it to the Liberals, do it to the Conservatives, do it to the Green, do it to the Independents, do it to the Bloc. you got to answer. The reason we have the House of Commons and we have a democracy and we have a question period is so questions can get answered, not so people can just get up and make speeches about whatever the heck they want when they're asked a particular question. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. Um, but I think that um, there's another issue at hand here. Uh, when I talk about the lack of teeth uh, among reporters asking questions in some places, I think I think that media people have been uh, treated poorly uh, in a lot of instances by their parent companies. and they they've been kind of led to believe that if they if they rattle the cage too loudly themselves, um, that they they believe, rightfully or wrongfully, that there may be some comeuppance for them in the form of the next round of layoffs and so on and so forth. And I think that affects the quality of journalism in our country. I, I really do. I think that affects the, um, the tenaciousness 
of reporters in those press conferences in those scrums. That's just my opinion, but I've been around this business a long time and, and I've seen, you know, and, and watched and listened to things get really watered down. Tougher questions were asked, you know, 20, 30 years ago and, and nobody lost their minds over it. Um, but sure. Anyway. But would you, would you support Jamie, the idea, and this always gets brought up. Would you support the idea that if if a if there's a situation going on like this, where it's a very important story that's going on, and it could be anything, but it happens to be this one right now, if the leader refuses to answer the questions of the reporters, as was the case, we will not cover any of your appearances, of your photo ops, of anything else until you do. We are going to basically black you out. We'll attend to see if you do answer the questions to get back into the proper coverage but until you answer the questions that we ask there will be no photos of you writing a check or or cutting a ribbon or riding a bus or doing all these things all that fluff stuff is gone yeah uh, of, i agree with that it, it, you know unless of course some suit from upstairs calls and <laughs> says you know this is happening um <laughs> mr <laughs> Mr. Editor, uh, have a nice day. I think, and you know, that, that's that been happening since the beginning of time too. But here's the thing. We have to do a better job. Not we, but I think the media has to do a better job of weeding through that stuff that you mentioned. You know, the fluff pieces, the uh, uh, the photo ops, and and being a little tougher around the editor's desk, around the assignment desk. And trying to, or determining more closely what is fluff and what is not fluff. And, yeah, and it's tough. I, I think that I think that that stuff should have died on the vine just by its nature, anyway. Yeah, and it's tough. And and I don't disagree with you as a point of principle. It's tough though because if a politician comes to town with a check for two million dollars, there are those who in that community that is going to affect as far as jobs or contracts or something That's else. That's right. And so. It becomes difficult to say, well, is this really something that we should be covering? Because, look, it's just giving that party, using our money, a chance to get a pat on the back. Uh, it's it's a hard one. But I, I would be all for it. I would be all for the idea that if there is a really contentious issue and the leader of the party basically keeps spinning things their way and won't directly answer a question, that's fine. We we will not don't don't even bother coming to the community and asking us to come and take a picture. We're not doing it. I don't know well, that that would ever happen, yeah. but mm. it would be a brave stance to take, and I think it would be the right one to take. I, I, we, you know, the the difficulty is we again, like I said earlier, I think you need the, the media uh, properties have to sort of decide at, at some sort of committee of 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 their own, a United Nations, if you will, of Canadian media to do that to set some sort of a policy up um uh, to do that um in order to you know force the pendulum more back into the center uh when it comes to questions asked and questions uh, answered as opposed to questions asked and questions evaded or weak questions asked and questions answered i mean the problem exists on both sides as, as i see it um and i think that the spin doctoring has been allowed to really take root um, in the presence of a very, very uh, 
weak set of uh, reporters asking questions. I, I would almost say it's lazy, lazy. I, you know, the, the, the strong reporters, you can tell, you can read them, you can, you know what they sound like, you know what they look like, you've seen their stuff. They're standing out more these days like the exception and not the rule. And it should be the other way around. Just my thoughts. Jamie, in Quebec this week, a judge has dismissed the case of a man who was accused of harassing his neighbor by flipping him the bird. And the judge wrote this in a 26-page decision. Judge wrote, to be abundantly clear, it is not a crime to give someone the finger. Flipping the proverbial bird is a God-given charter-enshrined right that belongs to every red-blooded Canadian. So, first of all, agree or disagree with the judge? Agree. And uh, again, hat, hats off to uh, La Belle Provence uh, for having more common sense than most of the provinces in this country. All right. And I know you're not a, a, a you know, a random wanton bird flipper. That's not your, uh, your thing. So it's not about <laughs> no. just the freedom to do that. But I mean, I agree with you and I, I, I've, I can't remember the last time I ever did that. But here's the thing. If we're saying that it's okay to flip the bird because that's a form of expression, even though it insults the person you're directing it to, and even though it may be offensive to the person that you direct it to, why then do are so many other things labeled in a way that would say totally unacceptable within our society? And I and I'm not I'm not going down the path of things like the N-word, all right? That's in a different category. But mm -hmm. we have we have made an awful lot of things almost to the point where you couldn't possibly say them because somebody will claim complete offense and then you will be absolutely run out of town on social media or elsewhere. If flipping oh, yeah. a bird is okay, everything should be okay, right? Almost. Yeah, people are offended when some people are offended when you say Merry Christmas. <laughs> you know? If you don't say Merry Christmas along with all the other uh, uh, greetings that go along with different cultures and beliefs, then, you know, some uh, people are offended. And it's absurd. We, we, our society's gone nuts. We're looking for every possible reason to be angry with each other and be offended. It's an attention-seeking thing, you know. Narcissism is the, greatest, uh, is the greatest epidemic we've ever suffered. It's just nuts. We've lost common sense. We have completely lost it. That judge was right. And you're absolutely right with what you're saying. But you go um, to a university campus right now, Jamie, and you will hear about microaggressions and you will oh, hear yeah. about this and that and the other. And look, uh, and again, I'm not encouraging everyone to be driving home right now, rolling down their window and just randomly flipping people the bird. Someone will probably eventually, you know, you'll, you'll find that person who doesn't take kindly to it. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that this should be a part of our everyday discourse. But if we're saying that this is okay, should we not be then going to all those other people who are finding offense at every little thing and saying, eh, too bad the judge ruled against you already, shut up. Yeah. What's a microaggression anyway? Like th that's a, that's a new term, relatively new term. Who, who came up with that nonsense? A microaggression. What exactly is that? 
Well, I mean, the def- I yeah, the definition would be something presumably, and I, you know, someone who is better or more versed in this can correct me on this one. But it's it's one of those things where you know you're not really necessarily directly offensively trying to go after someone, but you say something that you know in the conversation offends them, or it's not a, a clear cut thing, but it's but you know in, it's built in, it's baked into your racist sexist whatever and, and so the language is is offensive that way okay um, by the by the subjective view of the of someone else any anyone else when are we when are we going to we're back to the, sort of what we talked about at the beginning of the show when are we going to get back to uh teaching our human beings as we raise them how to overcome challenges and overcome differences of opinion and uh, the difference between uh, being uh, disagreeing and being disagreeable. Um, I think those are. I think those things need to be uh, more defined and and uh, and taught and experienced, even in even in theory in in school. I mean, they do we, when they take, take civics in school. They do mock law trials and things like that. Well, let's do you know mock scenarios where somebody could be offended let's say let's let's do an anti-offending uh, anti uh taking it to heart thing growing a thick skin course we'll call it um but i don't think there's any value in that there's no there's no currency <laughs> in that jamie because there's there is great currency in victimhood right now in our society that that, oh, that yeah. is absolutely true that is absolutely true someone can disagree they'd be wrong there is great currency and sat and status in victimhood not everybody but for a lot of people, and so oh no, you're 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 right, and we're gonna pay, we're gonna pay a huge, huge price for that. We're gonna pay a huge uh, a price for that um, in in the not too distant future. I mean, look, I mean, I could get into all kinds of stuff. I'm thinking just off the top of my head about the labor market and about you know I, I heard the other day that that some places can't get anybody to work. In, in what world, you know? Could a fast food place not get get anybody to work? That, that it would have to shut down, close the the, the store uh, for an evening because they don't have anybody that that will work the the shift. That, that's well, a really awful sign, man. I'll tell you. Let me let me push just how far this victim thing has gone. And again, not with everybody. But in Minnesota right now, there is a law. There are, they are mulling whether to put in a law that would log alleged incidents of bias, even if they're not a crime. These are not hate crimes. That's a different thing. This is mm. anybody could report perceived bias-related incidents, alleged slurs or alleged verbal attacks, and these would be logged so people would then have a record. So, Jamie, anything you said that somebody – found offensive would go into some sort of database somewhere that would say, you know, in time, if three, if three different people over the years said Jamie said something offensive, they could, well, look, he's clearly an offensive person. He's like, I look at this, but but you can't tell me that if Minnesota does this, that other places won't, I guarantee you they will. And then you go to this thing. So if giving the finger back to where we started, if giving the finger is okay, and while I don't do it, I I support it as freedom of expression. Absolutely. 
Why are all these other things? And once again, for those just tuning in, we are not talking about the most egregious of the most egregious. We're not talking about the N-word or something like that. That's not what this is about. We're talking about all the stuff in between the two extremes. How come that then is dealt with so harshly in so many places if the judge just said that basically the physical equivalent to a lot of these insults is totally fine? You know, you said it a minute or two ago there. We're now, people are now anticipating being offended. They're now anticipating what you might say or do. And even if you don't do that, because they've anticipated it so much, they're actively looking for any, any thread in anything you've said that, that can fit their confirmation bias. Like it, we, we're Orwellian now, like it's happening. Thought crime. Like what you just described is that we're going to, that's what they're record. talking about. It's yes. Not, they are. It's, they are yeah. talking about building a database to monitor thought crimes. That's exactly you, what it is. <laughs> like, and what, what happened here? Well, and if it, and as I say, I'm not, I'm not making this up. You, you tell me if you think I, if Minnesota were to do this, other places will. Oh, Minnesota did. Minnesota was one of the first states that talked about defunding the police. Look how many other places decided to jump on board and follow that same thing. This would happen elsewhere. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a proposal out there that students in Ontario should now have to take, as part of their high school course, their high school curriculum, should have to take a mandatory tech credit. That somewhere along the way, you have to take a program in tech. The idea being, we have for a long time now pushed everybody into the university or post-secondary system because that's the right way to do it. And I'm doing air quotes on right. That's the right way to do it. If you don't go to university, you're a failure. If you go to college, that's pretty good. But if you don't go to either one of those, you know, mm, what you know, sorry, mom and dad, they, you know, sorry, it didn't work out. Okay. And I've long thought that is an entirely wrong attitude to have, that there is absolutely no shame to the opposite point. There is great respect in being a plumber, an electrician, a construction worker, all these things that we need. I, I think the idea of requiring kids to take a tech course, if only to see if they like it, because many of them would never have done anything like this otherwise, is a brilliant idea. What do you think? No, I fully agree. I was, again, I was strangely um, impressed uh, with that uh, announcement. I think, I think that's right. I mean, uh, Kids get exposed to little bits and pieces of all kinds of things through the education system, and why shouldn't this be one of them? I mean, back in back when I was in high school, there there was wood shop, there were there was auto mechanics, uh, machine shop. I think um, I'm probably missing something, uh, but those those three were there, and um, you're absolutely right about what you said uh, leading into this thing that. You're right. There, you know, the, the whole thing was about status. The whole thing was about, again, about parents trying to make themselves feel good and say, look at my kid. My kid went to university. My kid, my kid's a doctor. My kid's a lawyer. My kid's an accountant. And that's oh, fine. Those are all good things. They are good things. But 
but the other things are not bad things like being an entrepreneur, like being a plumber, like being a carpenter. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of people get got, again, I'm going to come back to the status thing. A lot of people thought, well, you know, if my kid goes and becomes a doctor, a lawyer, an account, whatever, then the money's there, the money, the money, the money, the money. Let's be honest. That's what people have focused on for generations. Well, you know what? Um, you run your own plumbing business. You go and work for an experienced plumber and you, you know, you learn uh, this, that skilled trade and it's highly in demand. You've got a big market. You start your own plumbing company, bingo, bango, the money's there. I mean, and, and in droves and the guy that's got maybe the, the PhD or even the um, MBA might be twiddling his thumbs while you're bringing home six figures. You know, I like, we got to get over this. We got to get over this thing about, you know, if you're dumb, you go into skilled trades because that's what the feel. That's always what it was. You go into vocational work. That is, that is, you know, if you're smart, you go, you go here. But we've got it, you, you, and the government's doing the right thing. It's looking at where the jobs are. It's looking at what's needed out there and saying, let's point these opportunities out to people. And I couldn't be happier about it. And bring back grade 13 while we're at it, since mm. we're on the subject of education. Well, yeah. I mean, look, I, I understand how we kind of moved here because, you know, when – and, you know – I there was a time when it was the less educated people who always had to go into the trades because, you know, dirty fingernails and all that, that was not, that was not educated. And, and, and we somehow moved that to everybody who wants to be successful must go to university. And there are studies that show that often many people who go to university do make more money, but that's not always the case. There are professions that are doing exceptionally well. And what you said earlier about the fact that, you know, we've had shop class and things in school. We have, we've always had, or most of the time we've had things where you could do shop, but that was your choice. You, you so it was the mm-hmm. people who had a, 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 that they recognized they had an affinity for that, that signed up for it. The idea here right. is you may not know that you're good at this. You may not know that you like this. We're going to dip your toe in the water. And you know what? At the end of that program, you may say, I hated that. I'm never doing that. But you may say, that was fantastic. I want to do that now. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And, and I want to touch on the whole thing about, the. thank goodness, as time has gone on, we, we've come to understand more about the human brain and how people learn. Because that's, that's a big factor, too, these days, when it comes to whether somebody goes to university or, or goes into the skilled trades or whatever. It's all how you learn. Some people think mathematically. Some people think in an abstract form. So they they think more creatively, more abstract. People, some people, as I just said, are, are more mathematical. So there's natural pathways for those types of thinkers and learners to go. And, and one isn't better than the other. They're just different. They're just different. And I think if, if you know, if we stop this idea that it has to be all of that in, in, you know, what it's been for generations, you have to go to university or you're done. I mean, you're, you're now hearing again, back to the labor market thing. Some they're finally admitting, finally admitting because they're so strapped, they're finally admitting in the labor market. Actually, you know what? You don't need that BA. Just get in here and we're going to, we're going to teach you how to do this job, whether it's a pencil pushing job in an office 
or whether it's somewhere on a line doing something, we're going to, we're going to train you on the job. <laughs> we could have, I mean, this should have always been the case. Can well, you imagine should've. how productive our economy would have been all these years if we'd taken that, that mindset, Scott? It's except, and, and again, um, we also, in addition to the idea that somehow university is something that we've decided is the only path for a lot of people, the only path to success, we also now have universities that are so immense, that are such big enterprises that they have to continue to have the flow of students going through to pay tuitions to make this thing work, especially That's international right. students. And if they, so, th you know, it's, it's not just that we're trying to find other people to move into other things. There is a business there that boy, the universities, which are funded in many, in a lot of ways from the provinces, uh, they've got a big problem if a whole lot of people decide to go elsewhere. So this is a, this is going to be a battle. But it's a battle that I think I applaud the Ontario government for bringing this thing in. I think it was, I think it was something to applaud when the curriculum began to include financial literacy. I think that here, was here. a terrific thing, and I think this is another good. I'm not saying everything that's done has been good, but these two things I think are really good ideas. No, they're 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 terrific ideas. They they really are. The as you pointed out, the the financial literacy thing is is tremendous and. That that should be taught right from, you know, kindergarten or grade one on, because there's concepts that, you know, the youngest uh, students can can learn that are age appropriate and so on and so forth. It just builds, you know, all of these things will, all of these things will contribute to us raising some stronger uh, generations. And yeah, there's, uh, you know, there's no, there's. <laughs> I think it will take some pressure off of, of people too, both parents and, and young people, um, you know, th th who feel that because Uncle Joe went to Western or, or McMaster or Queens, that, you know, I have to do that too. Um, no, you, you, I always say to people, say to my own kids, you, you have to focus on what you're interested in, what you like, and build something around that first. Mm. And that's because... I dread the idea of my children going through life unhappy in what they're what they're doing. And and let's be honest, no almost nobody does one thing for their whole life anymore. People you know have different careers, multiple careers in a lifetime. Some don't, but a lot do uh, now. Jamie, I want to tell you about what happened to me twice this week. Twice this week I was online doing research for the show and came across two stories that just caught my eye, and I was like, wow, i got to use those on the air. But then I thought, you know, let me just double-check that those are real. And one of them was about a company, I think it was in Virginia, an orthodontist that was providing services now for people in the funeral homes who wanted their teeth to look good when they were dead. And <laughs> the other was that in um, Berkeley, California, they were starting to make beer from yeast found in the beards of homeless men. All right, two <laughs> hilarious stories. But all it took was, you know what, I I'm going to check these. And you realize very quickly, it took about 30 seconds in each case to find out, oh, that's a joke. That's not a real story. My point is not to pat myself on the back or not to talk about these stories particularly, but it is generally not difficult 
to find out if something you're reading online that catches your eye is true or not. It really is not that difficult more often than not to double check something and go, oh, that sounds so wild. I, I think I'm going to be looking into that one. Why does nobody seem to do that? Because I see so many retweets of fraudulent, made-up, wrong, inaccurate stories bouncing around with people saying, did you see this? And no one seems to bother to want to find out if they're true before they share them. Yeah, I don't know. I, have we just been lulled into, uh, you know, being that gullible and, and not uh, trying to discern uh, what information is real and which isn't? I, I There's certainly a lot of information out there, and maybe that's part of the the problem is that we're just bombarded with so much stuff. And often, often, this, like the story about the homeless guy's beard and, and the other one you mentioned, they often appear side by side in, in algorithm feeds with legitimate, uh, you know, journalistic yes, endeavors. Yes. Because yes. because the because the algorithms give us what what they what it thinks we want to hear about or or see. Right. I so, understand that, but my point is this: we now have a government that is trying to put forward various bills that will get rid of misinformation when. I would argue 95% of the misinformation or disinformation that we are subject to, we could do the job ourselves to weed out if we just use our brains a little bit. A yes. Our brains and Google for 30 seconds and most of the crazy stuff we could say, that's not true. Right. So again, what, what, what in the world makes anybody think that, again, it's just a, it's just a, a political exercise to make it look like they're doing something it's it's completely non-enforceable as a policy or if it becomes some sort of a law and you're right you can't legislate people to be intelligent and take responsibility for you know what they believe and don't believe in well it's just I, another it, symptom the other problem i'm going to have with this is when they pass these laws and they probably will these bills will go through that will the misinformation, then you now lull people into this sense of security that, well, there's no misinformation now on the internet. Therefore, I can believe everything I read, which is even right. worse than where right. we are right now. Right. It is. That's a good point. That's a really good point. And who gets to sift through all the allegations that are made? Who gets to sift through all the, the complaints when this thing becomes a law? And, and then who gets to adjudicate it? Don't we have enough to adjudicate in this country like we can't even we can't even take care of the stuff that we need to take care of let alone this you know again at what point do we hand back to people individual responsibility for some, for certain things in life or do we have to nanny state absolutely everything apparently well, we do well and beyond that even let's take a quick break here beyond that even Jamie how many, I have no idea. I don't know the answer to this question. How many tweets do you think are fired up every day? Even just in Canada, 20 million, 50 million, probably. I'll say 75 million. A rough okay. Number. 75 million, somewhere in between zero and a hundred million, let's say probably closer to the higher end. How in the world are we going to have even an algorithm going through that and right. checking this stuff? 
so what you're going to have is you're going to, if you have people doing this, which is impossible, you're going to have bias put in that. If you have an algorithm that's looking for stuff, it's going to, it's always going to have some kind of bias. This is the idea that we are going to weed out all misinformation. <laughs> what that really means is that whoever decides what is misinformation is the stuff that will get weeded out. So the the people who build the system, what they determine is not right, will be what's gone. So if you are big, a big brother, if if you are a small L liberal. And it is a conservative IT group that is doing this. You should be very concerned that you're not, that the stuff that's weeded out that they are going to determine as misinformation is stuff that may be true, but they disagree with. And if you are a small C conservative and it's a liberal IT group doing this, you should probably be very concerned that they are going to do the same thing the other way. It, it can't work. It cannot work. Hey, you're right. It's impossible. So there you go. And that's probably why they'll, why they'll do it and waste our money and time. Municipal taxes in Hamilton, right now there's a vote on March the 29th to ratify this, but it looks like it's going to be a 6.7% tax increase, almost three times what it was last year, more than three times what it was the year before that. Jamie, how are you uh, feeling about 6.7%? Well, not good um, because... Like we were talking about earlier, when you start having these types of tax increases, they they just they become the norm. And I think it's too high. And but we're you know we're too afraid to to make tough cuts, and we're too afraid to hold uh, people accountable uh, for the money that they're they're spending. Um, and in the absence of increasing the business tax base in this city, uh, it's tough. It's a really, it's a tough one. And I have to say, I'm, I am surprised at it because I thought the business tax base was increasing in our city. Like, I'll admit, I don't sit there and pour over spreadsheets, uh, you know, at, at City Hall every day. But I'm going on what everybody else is going on. They see businesses building places in say the uh Ancaster Industrial Park or you know in the East Mountain Industrial Park uh, Glanbrook uh, and that kind of thing and we start to think well okay you know we're you know there's there's corporate money coming in here that should help offset things but no it's it's a that, that's a tough pill to swallow and we we've, we've got a very socialist council now so well, Ted McMeekin count ward 15 councilor told me this week because uh, I didn't have the exact numbers in front of me, and I just looked them up again out of my notes. Ted McMeekin told me that uh, the city right now, 14% of our tax base is commercial industrial, 86% is residential. And Ridiculous. when you consider when you consider that the the commercial industrial pays a much higher rate, that's a huge problem. And here's the big here's one of the things. All right, so let's not get into the issue of where you want an arena per se, but a number of years ago. When Michael Andlauer from the Bulldogs went to City Hall and said, "I want to build, I want to help you build an arena at Lime Ridge Mall, and I'll put yeah. some of my own money in," and Council said, "No, no, no. Keep one thing in mind: Lime Ridge Mall is this city's largest taxpayer. You would think that in a city that has a fourteen percent commercial industrial and eighty-six percent residential, you want to be so sure 
that that place remains healthy and the largest taxpayer because malls are having a hard time these days. And if Lime Ridge Mall were to completely switch into something else and the mall essentially as a mall was to change, boy, you're talking about a huge wallop of money, a huge amount of money now that has to get added to the residential again. And you don't have to go back in history that far to have that lesson reviewed and and learned, but that's part of the problem. People around the table aren't doing that. You know, did we learn nothing from Stelco? Did we learn nothing from Firestone, P&G? Let's go on, uh, on and on and on. You know, um, you're right. You, you, we, we sh- First of all, this city, for whatever reason, has always lacked imagination around the council table. It's always the, it's always the local op- entrepreneurs, the Ann Lowers and others, who imagine the good things for this city. And then they get shut down as soon as they walk in. They get buried in red tape and they get the, they get the, the humdrum, you know, sort of um, reception uh, by the politicians. And it's, it's terrible. How can Brantford, how can, like Brantford's like talking openly this week about building a 5,000 seat arena for an OHL team. And they're saying, Okay, well, if the Bulldogs go back to Hamilton in three years, which I predict they won't, but if they do, then we'll, we'll find another hockey team to come in. You see, there's the difference. They're, 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 they're willing to go forward and imagine what can be there, and they know they've got a hockey town, and, they, and they're just taking the bull by the horns, mm-hmm. and they're grabbing the opportunity with the Bulldogs. They're grabbing. Taking they're looking the Bulldogs at by the horns. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and, and the thing about the thing about six point seven percent also that we have to remember, and this gets lost a lot of the time, because let's say next year they get it to four percent, and everyone will go, "Wow, okay, it's only four yeah. percent. We feel great." Remember, this is not a one-time payment of six point seven percent. Next year's will build on what you add. On that. Right. So, so we forget that we think, oh, next year it'll only be four. So that's good. We'll be back to where, no, no, you're, we're going up by 6.7 next year, add to that level. Then the next one adds to that one. So this is not a one-off where we can just say, well, it was one year and we just had to pay a lot and you know, so be it. This is, this is adding to the perpetual amount that we have to pay. That's That's that's, right. And it gets tough. It gets tough. And here's where it gets dollars. It does. And consider, and I know this is not everybody, but consider, you know, there are a lot of people in this city, some of them listening. There are a lot of people in this city who own homes that are worth a lot of money right now. But they, in many cases, are people who bought those homes 50 years ago when they were worth ten dollars or $12,000. So yes, in, in, on paper, they have a lot of money right now because that home might be worth eight hundred thousand or seven hundred or a million. So right. yeah, but they are now retirees on a fixed income who did nothing to make the price of their house go up, but the taxes they have to pay keeps going up and up and up. So yeah, when they die, their kids will benefit. There's no question. But in the meantime, they have to try and find a way to stay in their home because due to nothing they've done the value and the cost that they're incurring are going way, way up. And I, yeah, I the, just, ta- the taxes are higher than their mortgage payments used to be. Exactly. So Jamie, let me, let me run a couple things, just throw a couple things at you here. As recently as 2014, 43.7 million people, and just in the States, maybe there'll be more in Canada around the world, but 43.7 million people watched the Oscars last year. 
15.36, a third. Let me give you two more things. Last year, the Best Picture nominees, Nomadland, The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank, Minari, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and The Trial of the Chicago 7. How many of those have you seen? None. Okay. Me neither. I'm sure they're all tremendous movies, not, but not exactly box off as gold. This year, Best Picture nominees, All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar, The Way of Water, The Banshees of Inishirin, Elvis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Fablemans, Tar, Top Gun Maverick, Triangle of Sadness, and Women Talking. At least three of them, big box office popular, not necessarily art house fair. You think that they are finally getting the idea that maybe people are interested in things that they are interested in and don't want to have art house stuff shoved down their throats and telling them they're supposed to like it? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I Out of that pile that you mentioned there, I, I, I only saw Elvis and I only saw it. I didn't even see it on the big screen. I saw it recently on a smaller uh, a screen. And wish I had seen it on the big screen because it's a ter- it's a great. It was uh, good. It's very film. good. Yeah, but it's uh, not. But it's that. not elitist, right? And and yeah. I and, that, and that's a derogatory term. And I, I probably shouldn't categorize all of the other ones from last year and the year before into elitist. But these are people movies. These are movies for the people, and I am so happy to finally see them starting to. Clearly, like Top Gun Maverick two or three years ago would never have got a sniff for Best Picture because the people doing it would have had their nose in the air going, oh, that's, you know, Top Gun. I agree. (laughs) And now I think finally maybe we're heading back to where these things might matter a little bit because some of the people watching may have actually seen some of these movies. Well, it also helps that some of these movies are being made. Like, you know, like that's that's the thing. I think that you know, some of these some of these movies are actually being made, so they actually exist. So they they're finding, you know, an an audience. I agree with you that the you know the these art films. What was the one uh, something about the dog with uh, Cumberbatch in it? Or it was horrible. I I <laughs> I saw I saw it at this this city's I think one of this city's greatest theaters, the Playhouse down on uh, Sherman. Um. <laughs> Beautiful auditorium, horrible movie. I think I fell asleep. Another another one was uh, Infinity Pool. I saw that there recently. Another horrible movie. Brendan Cronenberg, David Cronenberg's son. Don't do it. You won't be happy. Um, <laughs> now you got me doing movie reviews. Yeah, I, I think that I think that it's it's time, and I think that we're seeing that creep back in popular. Uh, subject matter and popular popular films that people can relate to on some level, you know, and it, and that's good. It is good. It, it like t- here's the thing: Top Gun. I, I'm I'll be the first to admit when I heard they were making a sequel to Top Gun, I, I was kind of like, oh man, it was a mm. really really excellent movie. But it's the kind of movie that you would think that the people with the Academy generally would sniff at. Because it's for, it's it's not, as I say, it's not highbrow. It's just a lot of fun. It's very well done. And it's a really enjoyable two or two and a half hours of the theater. But you don't leave there feeling like somehow your life has changed. And now you have to, you know, do something to help some disenfranchised group. 
it's just a really good time at the movies, which is okay. I think that I think it comes back to to what I said before the the, the timing of the release of movies. Movies, uh, what's available? You know, what's what's out there? What's what's been in in movie houses? What have people been offered as as you know as a subject to watch? And so you got you got Top Gun this year. You got Elvis. Uh, Fableman's I heard sucks, um, and it's just about Spielberg's weird family, and it's not really that great. Um, but yeah, uh, so you know you can only you can only go see what is kind of out there, right? And and I think these things run cyclically. Like we had Bohemian Rhapsody and Rocket Man, didn't we? A couple few years back i don't know if rocket man made it in yeah i don't know if rocket man did but bohemian rhapsody and i don't know if bohemian rhapsody i'd have to go back and look i don't know if it was up for best picture certainly um what's his name who played freddie mercury grammy malik yeah yes yes and he was amazing and Mm -hmm. i I know he and he may have won i think he may have won i think he did win yeah anyway it's just it 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 really is a it, it i i think when you look at those those viewership numbers and there's a bunch of reasons i would propose why viewership is where it is um one of the big ones is that half the audience half of the country in the states doesn't really find a whole lot of enjoyment in being lectured to by hollywood elites about their politics and so they just say forget it i'm not watching or being lectured to by will smith yelling at chris rock Uh, and slapping him (laughs) you know that's the one way that's that we got to go that's the one way you could probably drive up viewership numbers today for, for Sunday is <laughs> guaranteed Will Smith is going to be tied to a chair and Chris Rock can come up and just give him the biggest <laughs> belt ever. You, people would tune in. Now they would tune out again after that, but nonetheless, <laughs> I, I, that's, no, um, I would, <laughs> you know, make Good it a pay-per-view, make it a pay-per-view. Chris Rock versus Will Smith's wife. Well, I can't remember her name now, but um, Jada. 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 Yeah. Jada Pinkett G-I-G-A-G-I-Jane Smith. There you go. G.I. Jane Jada. Yeah. Oh, anyway. don't say that. Someone will come and slap uh, you right now. I don't now. care. <laughs> I don't care. Alopecia, Jane. Alopecia, Jada. Alopecia is not a disease. Give me a break. Good. There night. is Jamie West. Send all your postcards to Jana. Just um, Jamie, listen. Really Please appreciate do. you doing this today. Really appreciate you jumping on today. Always love having you. Always, Thanks for doing this. Oh, always fun, Scott. Thanks. Take care. In- enjoy the shoveling. The Scott Radley Show, weekday evenings from six to eight on nine hundred CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.